Hey, Steminists, it's Emlyn Gremlin here with a quick announcement. You are currently listening to an older episode of Stem Fatal, one in which we had not quite figured out how to turn the microphone on. So if the audio quality bothers you, I urge you to skip ahead to episode 17, where we are oh so crisp and oh so clean. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it just worked out that way. Okay, here's the app. By circa 
because there's a lot of cool science ladies now that maybe don't aren't as famous as you know some of the big science communicators like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just sort of want to make all of science more public yeah. and women in science more public. Yeah, yeah. I think so those seems... are our goals. We yeah. will outline outline them at the beginning of every podcast. <laughs> <laughs> just know. for the first one. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so should we start? Yeah, okay. I guess so. Okay, so I'm starting. Gremlin, Emlyn Gremlin is starting <laughs> this week. And I'm going to start out with a, a, a poem. Oh, yes. See, she... Better fuck it up. Uh, <laughs> I'm really glad we decided not to make this... Um, not PG. explicit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> already said. So that was that. Okay, now to my poem. She sells she shells. No. I had I had to go to uh, I was at speech therapy for like three years no. in elementary school, so this poem is very <laughs> traumatic. traumatic for me. Why you do that to yourself? <laughs> okay, she sells seashells on the seashore. The ship, the shells, <laughs> she sells. <laughs> Are seashells, I'm sure. For if she sells seashells on the seashore, then I'm sure she shells. I don't know why you do that. Shells. Shells. Bye. That's, and that is stem fatale. And we're done. Um, okay, oh so this gosh. was a tongue twister. Written by Terry Sullivan in 1908, and it's inspired by the woman scientist I'm going to talk about today. Ooh. So we went through that for a reason. no way. Uh-huh. That poem was inspired by a female scientist? Uh Uh-huh. Wow. That's pretty Um, cool. I had no idea. So I think the London Natural History Museum has claimed her to be the greatest fossilist the world ever knew. Do you know who I'm going to talk about? Fuck no. <laughs> I'm ashamed. Um, Listeners, I'm ashamed, but I don't know who that is. Do you know who Mary Annie is? Who's in oh. our theme song? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> um, Go on. Why okay. don't you tell me? <laughs> okay, so um, Mary oh, Annie. That's good. Was born in Lyme Regis in Dorset, England. So it's like southern England. Um, and her father was a cabinet maker. But it seems from what I've read that he didn't really care about cabinet making. And just decided to mostly spend his days looking for fossils on the shore. Well, he could care about both. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like he did. <laughs> okay, yeah. He could, but I don't think he did. No, so, um... Yeah, so he spent his time mining the coastal cliffside fossil beds near Lyme Regis and selling Lime his... Lyme Regis? Yeah, so Lyme Regis is um, a town in southern England. Okay. I've actually been there. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Um, so Mary Annie and her parents lived in a house that was so close to the sea in Lyme Regis that when storms came their houses would get completely flooded, and apparently at one time they had to go up to the upstairs bedroom and then climb out a window to get (laughs) to escape being drowned. So I think it was kind of a precarious place to live. And apparently the house was also across the street from the jail. 
Oh. Um, and also, also across <laughs> from the stocks. So like a really good, oh, safe yeah. area, all in all. Oh my gosh. Um, then like so, the stock market? <laughs> the stock market. She was born in 1799. Oh. <laughs> so, no. The stocks. Like, like where, the, where you put your head in. <gasps> oh. Oh, uh, Yeah, the stocks. Wow, um, so she is like this morbid... Yeah, so it doesn't yeah. seem like great. A lot of like different interests. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, a scene where it all comes from. Yeah. Now. So um, her parents, Richard and Molly, they had ten children. No. Um, however, so I thought when I was reading about this that so Mary, there was a Mary that was the oldest daughter, but she got burnt up. <gasps> burnt up. <laughs> yes, burnt up. Um, and so the, the Mary Annie that we talk about uh-huh. is the young, like one of the younger ones that they then named after the older one no. that di- died up, which is like, why would you do that? I guess I'm oh, like memory. her own name. So there's like multiple Did Marys that died and then they just kept her? naming them Mary. Oh no. How could you not say Mary Annie and just think of your burnt? I know. Oh. Yeah. So, Maybe. but apparently... Uh, so they had ten children, and only two of them survived. That was then. Oh my god, so many. That's why you have so many. How many months of pregnancy is that? Ninety? Yeah, that's easy math. Good job. <laughs> PhD's here. So, yeah, so, um, so I think it's pretty traumatic. Like, you can... But also, like, pregnancy is, like... More than just nine months, right? Are, I mean, no. no. <laughs> like, Biologists like, here. After you have the baby, you're just <laughs> like, oh, it's still there. It's yeah, still so, so, so motherhood. But I don't parent- love babies. Parenting <laughs> is definitely more than nine months. Yeah. Well, Pregnancy, yeah. Okay. pretty sure nine months. No, we're <laughs> Okay, so um, when Annie... So when Mary Annie, the one that didn't burn, the younger one, the one right. we're interested oh, right. in. Yeah, um, I'll just assume you're talking about yeah. that Mary Annie. Yes, uh, from now on. Uh, when she was 15 months old, I guess she was like a sad, sickly, she was like born too early and oh, wasn't doing that well. But I guess an event occurred that became part of local lore in Lyme Regis. So her neighbor was taking care of her. So this neighbor, Elizabeth Hastings, um, was taking care of her and holding her and was standing with two other women under an elm tree watching this, like, strange equestrian show that the whole town had gone to see um, that was put on by a traveling company of horsemen. I don't know. That's Why all I know. that still happen? I need that in my life. Um, I know somebody who's taking horseback riding lessons right now. Okay. <laughs> so the, Elizabeth Hastings is holding Mary Anning, who's this 15-month-old baby, um, under this tree, and then lightning struck the tree, and it kills all three women. What? And oh I, my God. but I guess like uh, Elizabeth Hastings falls over and still holding this baby, and um, onlookers rushed into rushed the infant home where she was put in a hot water bath and I guess revived. And the local doctor declared her survival uh, miraculous. And her family said that she was a sickly baby before, but then afterwards seemed to blossom. 
Um, And so for years afterward, members of her community would attribute uh, Mary Annie's curiosity, intelligence, and lively personality to the fact that she was electrocuted by uh, lightning. (laughs) Oh my god, it's like so sweet and traumatizing at the same time. Yes. So, So this is kind of her backdrop. She's living in this kind of shitty, shitty house. She has eight deceased brothers and sisters. She was electrocuted. (laughs) (laughs) And then her family, her, to add insult to injury, her family, um, was part of the dissenters church, which by the name of it seems like somebody's going to be mad at you. Right. Like they've left the church of England. (laughs) So the church of England was kind of pissed. But there was a lot of things that I think you like. You couldn't go if you were one of the dissenters. You couldn't go to college. You couldn't. There was a bunch of restrictions on oh. you by the Church of England because you were a dissenter and they oh didn't my like you. Gosh. So she wasn't able to have any sort of like real schooling, and her education was very limited and cons- consisted of going to Sunday school, which apparently for the dissenters was mostly teaching them how to read and write. Oh, so it seems pretty good. School. Yeah, versus yeah. like religious teaching, it's mostly just like yeah, like here's how to read and write. These yeah. are very practical skills. <laughs> um, and this made me kind of sad. So her, pri- so I guess books are really expensive during this yeah. time. And her prized possession was this bound volume of the Dissenters Theological Magazine and Review, Whoa. which her family's pastor had written a couple articles in. Um, and one consisted of how God had created the world in six days. Oh. So this is like of the she has oh, nothing no. to read except this one book. So half of it's about how the God, was, God created the world in six days. And the other part urged dissenters to study the new science of geology. That... It's, in, it's interesting. Wait, when did they really discover... Oh, this is a bad... I know oh, neither of us know this. Oh, so, okay, yeah. in the 1800s, they discovered the Earth was really old, right? Because Darwin used that This knowledge. is before Darwin. Right, but he used that to form his theory evolution by natural Yeah, and I think at this time, people thought that the world was 4,000 years old. Yeah, okay. Um, Yeah, so God created it in six days, all the animals came, then Jesus, and then present. Like, that's history. Right. Um, So... Guys, Earth is billions of years old. (laughs) (laughs) Um... I don't know. It keeps me awake at night sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so she was getting educated essentially. Yeah. Even though it was that's pretty, she she didn't have a formal education. She was able to read and write, and the two things she read were about the creation of the world and about how you should study geology. Yeah. Um. And so by the late 18th century, so apparently Lyme Regis was kind of a shithole for a while. Like, there was trash. You could like couldn't look out your windows. There was so much trash. But then someone decided that salt water was really good for your health. And so then Lyme Regis became, like, one of those places that people go to, like, oh, bathe. bathe and, yeah, yeah. I read about some weird things where there's, like, if you're a modest woman, they have these, like, cabins that they put into the water so you could, like, bathe in the water without anyone seeing and, like, boats had to be 100 yards away from any of these, like, wood bathing bins. Whoa. Anyways, so 
Lime Regis had become a popular seaside resort, and increasing numbers of wealthy and middle-class tourists had arrived there. And even before uh, Mary was born, locals supplemented their income with selling these, like, curios or these fossils um, to visitors. And so these were fossils with colorful local names such as snake stones, which are ammonites. Oh, Oh, Um, cool. Devil's fingers, which are belemnites. Do you know what belemnites are? I think I looked it up, and they're like um, squid. I could get this wrong, but I think they're squid. What? (laughs) They're squid fossils. (laughs) That was the word. I had just said it. Squid fossils. Okay. Squid boners? Like fossils. Those would be devil's fingers. Squid yeah. boners. Um, and vertebraries, which is not a very clever name for vertebra. And also some of these fossils were attributed medicinal and medical properties. A lot of them were like, are you, do you have erectile dysfunction? We can fix that. Still crush up this bone. Crush up, crush up this fossil. Mary Annie, it was lucky that she was there because Lyme Regis is one of the best preserved areas to find fossils, like, in the world. Um, And so the coastal cliffs of Lyme Regis are really rich in fossils, and this area is part of a geological formation known as Blue Lias, uh, which is made of altering layers of limestone and shale, so both of those kind of crumble pretty easily. That was laid down on a shallow seabed during the Jurassic period. Um, and this is one of the richest fossil locations in Britain. And these cliffs are super unstable. So I think they're like 150 feet tall. But they kind of are cavernous. So they yeah. go up. And then there's like this cliff edge that overhangs. Wow. So they're really dangerous too. And during wintertime when it often rains, there are frequent landslides that expose new fossils. And whenever there are storms... It exposes new fossils, so there's always new fossils every time there's a big storm. And Mary Anning's father often took this remaining, his remaining two children, so Mary and I think the oldest, Joseph, um, fossil hunting on fossil hunting expeditions to make money for the family. And this was during the French Revolutionary War, so they had, there was food shortages in England, and so it was, they were super, super poor. And there were a lot of riots about the rising price of bread. They weren't doing great, essentially. Yeah. So they're Her really... Life just sounds so interesting. Like, kind of magical and... I don't know. I mean, like... <laughs> magic. I don't think magical. <laughs> I don't know. All the fossils... I'm just, like, imagining her going to sleep at night dreaming of fossils. Okay, if you take out the fossils, though, it kind of sounds terrible. Like... Yeah. Okay, okay. I'm going to drink some more of this. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because I need Do it. Do you want... We can pot or... No, let's just keep going. Okay. I'm just going to yeah. pour a little of this. So as I said, the family were religious dissenters, and that wasn't great back then. And they didn't follow the Church of England, which meant they were discriminated from, and so they had a really hard time. And then her father died in 1810 of tuberculosis and injuries from a rock, like some of the cliffs falling on him. So he, like, got knocked unconscious and was sick and then got tuberculosis and then died. Um, And so this left his family. I say rocks falling on you just kill me then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's the quicker way to go. So the family was in a lot of debt, and so they continued to search 
uh, for fossils to try to sell them and to make money um, during that time. And so in 1811, so the year after her dad died, uh, Mary was 12 and her brother went out to go collect some fossils and dug up a four-foot ichthyosaur skull. But they didn't know what it was. They thought it was just a really big crocodile skull. And so nobody was really even impressed. They were just like, oh, this is cool. But we, like, find, you know, this all the time, I guess. I don't know why there's so many crocodile (laughs) skulls. In England? Yeah. Which you think would still be cool because there's no crocodiles in it. But no, I guess no people weren't that impressed. But a few months later. Yeah. So also four feet is just the head. Oh my god. Can you imagine like digging that up? That's way bigger than any crocodile, right? Yes. Like head. Yes. Okay. I mean I think they like they can get they can get pretty big. Yeah. But I would still think you'd be excited. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe they were excited, but um so yeah, how did they know they weren't excited? I don't know. This is what yeah, I Yeah, okay. But a few months later, Mary went out and she was trying to find the rest of the skeleton that her brother wanted her to find. And she actually did find it. It was clear once she they started digging out the bones that this was something that they did not know what it was. Which, like, can you imagine? And I think it was, like, 17 feet long. Oh, wow. And you have no idea. You're like, this is nothing that we know what it, like know about. I guess at that time, people had explored enough of the world to know, like, a lot of the animals that lived on Earth. Yeah. But most of them still weren't categorized, right? So, yeah, but, but at least in that's Britain. That's such a big animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least this isn't... Wow. If it was something that was somewhere else, at least that, it wasn't somewhere yeah. that was in Britain. I can't imagine yeah. finding anything like that, even now. Yeah. So, um... I guess this whole area was owned by this guy named Henry Host Henley. It's a mouthful. Um, And he was the lord of the manor near Lyme Regis. (laughs) And so he paid, but he, so they dug this whole, it was an intact skeleton of something they didn't know what it was. And he paid them $23 for it, which apparently is a lot of money. Back in the day. Yeah. In like the 1800s? Like what the is that, 1800s? like $300 now? I don't know. I have a conversion. So four, oh, four, oh. 23 pounds, okay. not dollars. Uh, but I guess 400 pounds is the equivalent of 26,000 pounds now, or no. in 2010. So, it's, so 23 pounds was quite yeah. a bit of money. Okay. Um, and so in turn, he sold it to William Bullock, which was a well-known collector who displayed it in London yeah. um, in something that would best resemble like a natural history museum. I don't think they had it. Natural History Museum at the time. Um, And there it generated considerable interest because at the time, most people in England believed in the biblical account of creation. And this didn't fit into that because they didn't know what it was. And it seemed like something that didn't exist now. And it implied that the earth was... uh, Yeah, so the account of creation implied that the earth was only a few thousand years old. And this... Uh, this fossil skeleton raised the questions about the history of living things on life itself. So this is before Darwin. So there's no evolution. Right. So Earth is super young. Everything was created all at once. There is no change. Would you believe it? Or would you be like, someone is tricking me? 
I have no you idea. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because I can imagine someone pulling up some, like, crazy thing now, and I'm just like, yeah, no, you're, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, that little alien skeleton with the cone head. No. In our, oh, in yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think. Which looks fake, but it is, it just turned out to be a human. With yeah. Like deformity or something. Some messed up head. I remember um, seeing that for the first time and being like, I think it's a hoax. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Why do you kind of think it's a hoax or... I don't know yeah. what I would think. It's and huge. Like, yeah. But so... So this was... Like, uh, this fossil skeleton was later sold for 45 pounds um, at some auction. And it was called the crocodile in a fossil state. So people still, huh. I think, weren't necessarily convinced that it was yeah. something new. But, like, if you... It had flippers, so it was, like, a crocodile head, and then, like, a fish, a big fish body, and then, like, dolphin flippers. So it doesn't... so cool. And so, yeah, the British Museum bought it, and Charles Koenig, I guess, um, suggested the name Ichthyosaurus for it, and this finding raised questions um, in both scientific and religious circles about this new science of geology and what it was revealing about ancient life and the history of the earth. So like already her first, she's 12, her and her brother find this and it's question. Religious people are questioning their views. Scientific people are questioning their views. And so in 1820, the family is again, deep in poverty and they haven't found any major fossil discoveries for a year. And they're at the point where they're starting to sell furniture to pay for their rent. And then this guy, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas James Birch, who was a wealthy fossil collector and one of the family's keenest customers, auctioned off all of his fossils that he purchased from the family in the hopes uh, on their behalf. And so he raised 400 pounds, which is what is worth 26,000 pounds now. Wow. and it's unclear how much the family got from that, but <laughs> they seem to do much better. Yeah. That. So just he gave enough. them a significant amount of money. Yeah. Um, and it also so raised nice. the family's profile within the geological community. So they started realizing, yeah. oh, it's this one family that's collecting yeah. all of these fossils that are really cool. And so um, Mary kept on hunting fossils and collecting them was dangerous winter work so mostly in the winter when there's these big storms as soon as the storm ends you go and hopefully most of the stuff that's going to fall has already fallen so there's lots of there's like landslides and oh i see what you mean. Yeah, yeah so it's very dangerous and so in 1823 an article in the bristol mirror said of her this persevering female has for years gone daily in search of fossil remains of importance at every tide for many hours under the hanging cliffs of lime whose fallen masses are her immediate object, as they alone contain these valuable relics of a former world, which must be snatched at the moment of their fall as the continual risk of being crushed by the half-suspended fragments they leave behind, or be left to be destroyed by the returning tide. To her exertions, we owe nearly all of the fine specimens of ichthyosauri of the great collections. This, like, needs to be a children's movie. There are so many children's books about her. I believe that. Yeah, there's multiple. Um... The, the risks of her profession were illustrated when on October 1933, she barely avoided, she went out to collect some fossils and she barely avoided being killed by a landslide, but it buried her black and white terrier 
No. Trey. Oh, Trey. Who was her constant companion and always went out with her to fossil hunt. Oh. I know. Trey's like a sleaze bag name. But it's T-R-A-Y. Oh. I know. I don't know. It's British. British, yeah. <laughs> on the British. Um, so as Annie... Sad. Yeah. And then she was like, oh, I'm just going to keep doing well, this. Well, she's probably like, oh, it'll just be another fossil. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back. More fossils. I'll come, I'll come back in a couple of years. Well, so as Annie continued to make important finds, her reputation grew. And on uh, December 10th, 1823, she found the first complete plesiosaurus um, ever discovered. So, yeah, she found the first plesiosaurus. And when Connie Bear, I don't think that's how you say his name. Uh, when he presented his analysis of the plesiosaur anatomy to the meeting of the Geological Society in 1924, he again failed to mention Annie by name. So he didn't say who of had found course. who had found these typical, fossils, typical. Uh, even though she had possibly collected both skeletons and she had made the sketch of the second skeleton he used in his presentation. So she had she had found all the bones, wow. put them together, drawn up what she thought. The, the organism looked like, gave it to him, and then he did not credit her. Which, I mean, I think it it's was, just, it's the way it was. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, I'm not trying to, like, malign him specifically, but that's, that's just, yeah. like, that's the way it was. It could also be that she was a kid, right? Like, maybe that was part of it. And 1811, she was 12. So, 1823, oh, was, oh, she oops, was sorry. 24. I missed the dates. Yeah. Okay. So, Connie Bear, uh, his presentation was was made at at the same meeting at which William Buckland described the dinosaur Megalosaurus, and uh, I guess the combination created a sensation in scientific circles. So, this is when they're finding all of these giant dinosaurs, uh, or, you know. Yeah. Okay. We're just um, uh, extinct animals. Extinct animals. And oh, yeah, so the second fossil that Mary Annie found was named and described as Plesiosaurus dolichodiarus. Yeah. It's the type. It's the type specimen of the species that, oh, she, wow. and, that she found. Um, so it's a super important find. That's so cool. And so this presentation by Connie Bear. Followed after, what, um, what am I trying to say? Followed the resolution of a controversy over the legitimacy of one of the fossils. So I guess um, the fact that the plesiosaur's long neck had an unprecedented 35 vertebra, so it's that really long. Yeah, I just, oh, I just put Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. upload this somewhere at some point. Um, so all those vertebra raise the suspicions of the French anatomist Georges Cuvier. Cuvier? Cuvier. Cuvier. Uh, when he reviewed Annie's drawings of the second skeleton, and he wrote to Connie Bear, uh, suggest- <laughs> suggesting the possibility that the find was fake, um, produced by combining fossil bones from different kinds of animals. Wow. And so fraud was far from unknown um, between 19th century fossil collectors. And if the controversy uh, had not been resolved properly and quickly, which was done by Connie Bear during his presentation, um, the accusation could have seriously damaged Annie's ability 
uh, to sell fossils to other geologists because nobody's going to, if they think she's faking, she's making it up, she's yeah. making it up and she's not actually finding these amazing new species, then nobody's going to buy from her. Can't just take a picture of it, right? Yeah. So uh, Cuvier's accusation was uh, had resulted in a special meeting of the Geological Society in uh, 1824, which after some debate, they had concluded that the skeleton was legitimate. So that kind of put that uh, rumor to rest. Wow. And then Cuvier later admitted that he had acted in haste and was mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> yeah, once no one agrees with him, confident man is like, oh, I acted in haste. So... Um, Anning discovered yet another important and nearly complete plesiosaur skeleton in 1830 in the same area. So, like, why aren't there more people, like, just, I don't know, I'm surprised more people didn't didn't start going out there. Yeah, and go to that same spot. I guess it's very dangerous still. Well, she's a brave little... She's a very brave lady. And... That's the electric shock to just put that energy in her. No fear. (laughs) Um, and it was named, uh, Plesiosaurus macrocephalus, I can say that one, by William Buckland, and was described in an 1840 paper by Richard Owens. So she never actually wrote any official paper on all the findings she had, giving, either selling or giving these fossils to male geologists who then wrote them up. And sometimes credited to her and sometimes didn't. Uh, that's crazy. Um, Did they, like, so they bought them? Yeah, for the most part, or, like, um, a a collector would buy them from her, and then someone would then buy it, or get it, or, like, do research on it from the collector. Right, okay. Yeah. So, um, once again, Richard Owen mentioned that wealthy gentlemen who had purchased the fossil, uh, and made it available for examination, so he mentioned the people who he had bought it from, but not the woman who had discovered and prepared it, um, which was Marianne. Yeah. And then in 1828, the first British example of the flying reptiles known as pterosaurs, 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 um, called a flying dragon, uh, when it was displayed in the British Museum. So she, uh, found a squalaraha fish skeleton. (laughs) Why do people name shit like that? And now we still have to do it. (laughs) Call anything like Bob Joe, Bob Joe Two. <laughs> it's all based on Latin, mostly. Yeah, I know. Um, okay, so this fish skeleton that she found in nineteen uh, in eighteen twenty nine attracted attention because it had characteristics intermediate between sharks and rays. Wow, which was a big deal. Yeah. So, despite her limited education, she read as much of the scientific literature as she could obtain, and often uh, laboriously hand copied papers borrowed from others. And she also dissected modern animals, including both fish and, fish and cuttlefish, to gain a better understanding of the anatomy of some of the fossils which she was nice. working with. So she was really trying to get at the science and trying to understand, like, being able to identify and put all these fossils together. And Lady Harriet Sylvester, the widow of the former recorder of the City of London, visited Lyme in 1824 and described Anning in her diary and said... The extraordinary thing in this young woman is that she has made herself so thoroughly acquainted with the science that the moment she finds any bones, she knows to what tribe they belong. She fixes the bones to a frame with cement and then makes drawings and has them engraved. It is certainly a wonderful instance of divine favor that this poor, ignorant girl should be so blessed, for by reading and application, she has arrived to that degree of knowledge 
as to be in the habit of writing and talking with professors Aww. and other clever men on the subject, and they all acknowledge <laughs> <Clever> that. <laughs> and they all acknowledge that she understands more of the science than anyone else in this kingdom. Yes, thank you. Acknowledgement at last. <laughs> so in, in 1826, she's 27. So she's 27. Oh my god. <laughs> And they're like, yeah, that she bitch. knows. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They love her. Love um, her. That was a joke. Uh, she saved enough money to open up a storefront called Anning's Fossil Depot. Um, <laughs> Why doesn't this still exist? We should start a store in, in, and franchise it. In that store, I think they've made a museum to her life, oh, actually, in Lyme Regis. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, but in, so in the store, she has a full ichthyosaur skeleton on display. Just like. Of course. Hanging out. Oh my god. Can you, it's like 17 feet in this little storefront. And it's displayed, and many geologists and fossil collectors come from Europe and the Americas just to visit this little shop. Um, Including the geologist George. She's 12. She is now 27. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So some geologist, George William Featherstonehaw, called Anning a very Clever, funny creature. Okay. Um, okay. So she has the store, and so with this, she became more confident in her knowledge and skills, and, like, people are flying all over. Or, not... <laughs> not flying. All the shipping humans could fly. Shipping themselves all across the world. <laughs> right. To come to her store. And she's becoming more confident in her knowledge and skills, and in, ni- in 1830... Nine, so I think she's like 30, she's almost 40. Uh, she wrote in the magazine of natural history to question the claim made in an article that a recently discovered fossil of the prehistoric shark Hybodus represented a new genus. Um, uh, and she, as an error, since she had discovered the existence of fossil sharks from both with both straight and hooked teeth many years ago, so she, this is, I think, her only like formally published writing like in the wow. scientific literature is to be like no 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 this isn't a whole new genus I, I found these already oh my gosh. um and the extract from the letter uh that the magazine printed was the only yeah only writing that annie published in the scientific literature during her lifetime and as a working class woman in britain uh annie was considered an outsider to the scientific community so they respected her and they came to visit her and wanted to see her shop and wanted wow. her findings, but she was still an outsider. And at the time, British women could not vote, hold public office, or attend university. And additionally, um, the increasingly influential Geological Society uh, of London did not allow women to become members or to even attend their like lecture parties or whatever wow. as guests. So she's completely out from the Geological Society, and most of them are... Like, a lot of them are basing their, like, big findings on things that she has found. Which they didn't find. No. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're, you know, I, I guess, guess describing them. Yeah, placing them. Placing them in yeah. the history. So they're doing important things. Right. But she's providing a lot of the raw material right. for that and not getting so, credited. Wow. And so, although Annie knew more about fossils and geology than many of the wealthiest fossilists to whom she sold, it was always the gentleman geologist who published the scientific descriptions of the specimens she found and often neglected to mention her name. Um, and she became resentful of this, as you might expect. Yeah. 
And um, Anna Piney, a young woman who sometimes accompanied Annie, Annie when she collected, wrote, she says the world has used her ill. These women, these men of learning have sucked her brains and made a great deal of published works of what she furnished the contents while she derived none of the advantages. So she's still pretty poor and living in Lyme. And so William Buckland, uh, who lectured on geology at the University of Oxford, often visited Lyme on his Christmas vacations and often went fossil hunting uh, with Annie. And so people are, when they see her, I think are interacting with her as kind of a colleague, but she's still barred from a lot of these things. So the Swiss paleontologist Louis Agassiz, Agassiz, it's okay, (laughs) visited Lyme Regis in 1834 (laughs) and worked with Annie to obtain and study fossil, uh, fish fossils found in the region. And he was so impressed by her and her friend Elizabeth um, Philpot Hat. Yes. He wrote in his... like a Harry Potter name. (laughs) It's very British. He wrote in his journal, Miss Philpot and Mary Anning have been able to show me with utter certainty which are the ichthia... ichthidorulite... dorsal fins of sharks. These dorsal fins of sharks. um, That correspond to different types. So she's really taking out geologists and teaching them... Like, helping them find things and teaching them what is what, because she spent so much time out there. And he thanked both of them for their help in his book, Studies of Fossil Fish. So they got an acknowledgement in that. So that's nice. And so Annie's correspondence include Charles Lyell, who wrote to her to ask her opinion on how the sea was affecting the coastal cliffs around Lyme, as well as Adam Sedgwick, one of her earliest customers who taught geology at the University of Cambridge and who numbered Charles Darwin among his students. So she has a lot of influence yeah. and had a lot of interactions yeah. with really the people that we might hear about more in yeah. uh, history like classes. Like Richard Owen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Charles yeah. That's crazy. So she suffered another serious financial setback in 1835 when she lost most of her life savings um, in a bad investment. And so concerned about her financial situation, her old friend William Buckland, who she went out a couple times, she went out with to go collecting, persuaded the British Association for the Advancement of Science and the British government to award her an annuity? Annuity? Um, I just don't know. (laughs) Known as a a civil list pension in return for her many contributions to the, the science of geology. So they started paying her for all the great, important findings and help she had given. Um, So she got a 25-pound annual pension, which gave her a certain amount of financial security. Um, And Annie died um, from breast cancer at the age of 47 on 9th of March, 1847. And her work had tallied off during the last few years of her life, as you might imagine, because of her illness... But some of the townsfolk misinterpreted the effects of her increasing doses of laudanum, which is, like, a really intense painkiller, which I also think makes you really high. Um, So they, so she was taking a lot of laudanum for her pain, but people started gossiping online that she had a drinking problem, and that's why she wasn't uh, collecting. Yeah. Small towns. Yeah. Um, so the garden which she was held by the geologic community 
was shown in 1846 when, upon learning her vert cancer diagnosis, the Geological Society raised money from its members to help her with her expenses, uh, and the council of the newly created Dorset County Museum made her an honorary member. And she was buried on uh, the 15th of March in the churchyard of St. Michael's, which was the local parish church, and members of the Geological Society contributed to a stained glass window in her memory, which was unveiled in 1850. So during her lifetime and after her lifetime, the Geological Society, even though they, I don't know if they ever let her in. Yeah. It doesn't um, sound like it. They recognized how important she was. Okay. So here's some of kind of her larger impacts uh, that she's made. Vertebrate fossil finds, especially of marine reptiles, uh, made Annie's reputation, but she made numerous other contributions to early paleontology. So in 1826, she discovers what appears to be a chamber containing dried ink inside a bolemnite fossil. And she showed it to her friend Elizabeth Philpott, uh, who was able to revivify the ink. What? What are any of these words? Ink? No, revivify. I brought it back? Re-lifed it? I guess. Uh, and, no, she revivified... revivified. <laughs> What's the difference between revivify and revive? I don't know. Okay. She revivified right. the ink and used it to right. illustrate some of her own ichthyosaur fossils. So I oh. guess she, like, turned it from a solid to a liquid again. And then could use it to write. Um, And soon other local artists were doing the same. And as more such fossilized ink chambers were discovered, um, Annie noted how closely the fossilized chambers resembled the ink sacs of modern squid and cuttlefish. Of course she noticed that. Which she had dissected to understand the anatomy of fossil cephalopods. Um, And this led William Buckland to publish the conclusion that Jurassic bolemnites had used ink for defense just as modern cephalopods do. I'm, try- I'm just even picturing her, like, going out into the ocean. Or I guess, like, squid cephalopods will wash up on shore mm. sometimes. But it's, I don't know, is she just, is um, Lyme Regis just teeming with, like, cephalopods all over the beach? Or she's just there all the time? I mean, she's there all the time. Or do During, you think she's, like, swimming in the water? Like, <laughs> just <laughs> grabbing them. I don't know. She just seems so, like, magical and cool. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I would imagine they're more common than they are now. And so yeah. they probably wash up more. So she probably just had... That's and true. also, she probably could get them from fishermen. Like, fishermen go oh, out, and she right. might have been able to, like... Yeah, whatever. There are some bycatch or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much calamari people are eating at this time. Um, okay, so... So she did that, and then it was also Annie who noticed that the oddly shaped fossils um, that were known as bezoar stones were uh, sometimes found in the abdominal region of ichthyosaur skeletons. So that's, I think, how she realized that they were duty. Oh, cool. Okay. So she noted that if such stones were broken open, they often contained fossilized fish bones and scales, and sometimes bones from small ichthyosaurs. And so Annie suspected that the stones were fossilized feces and suggested that to Buckland in uh, 1824. And then after further investigation and comparison with similar fossils found in other places, Buckland published that conclusion in 1829 and named them coprophytes, which I said. Um, And then in contrast to the finding of the plesiosaur skeletons 
a few years earlier for which she had, was not credited when Buckland presented his findings of copper lights in the Geological Society. He mentioned Annie by name and praised her skill and industry in helping him solve this mystery. Oh, okay. Yeah. So one of the other things, I don't think I have it written here, but so because she, this whole, led to a, the copper light thing led to a whole food we- ability to look at ancient food yeah, webs. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. So they, they had a sense of like who was eating who and what this actual like ecosystem yeah. looked like based on now knowing that these were fossilized feces. Yeah, or even just discovering like smaller fish mm-hmm. that have gone extinct. Yeah. So um, Anning's discoveries also became key pieces of evidence for extinction. So uh, George's oh, wow. uh, Cuvier had argued for the reality of extinction in the late uh, 1790s Argued for the reality of extinction. I never even. I can't even imagine a time where we don't know that, that things can go extinct. extinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this people yeah, didn't know right. that extinction was a thing. Of course. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he had argued for extinction in the late 1790s based on his analysis of fossils of mammals such as mammoths. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, until the early 1820s, it was still believed by many scientifically literate people that just as new species did not appear, uh, so existing ones <laughs> did not become extinct. As we all know, Yikes. new species do not appear. Um, in part because they felt that extinction would apply that God's creation had been imperfect. So nobody wanted to think that. Um, and any oddities found were explained away by belonging to animals still living somewhere in an unexplored region of Earth, as we kind of talked about before. Yeah, right. But um, the bizarre nature of the fossils that Annie found and how big they were and how they didn't look at all like anything um, that existed today, uh, such as the plesiosaur, uh, struck a major blow against this idea. And so people started thinking that maybe extinction does exist. Yeah. And these things don't exist now. Um, And so ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs, and uh, pterosaurs, uh, she, she found all of those. And along with the first dinosaur fossils, which were discovered by Gideon Mantell uh, and William Buckland during the same period, showed that during previous eras, the Earth was inhabited by creatures very different from those living today. Um, and provided important support for another controversial suggestion of Cuvier's that there had been an age of reptiles when reptiles rather than mammals had been the dominant form of, of animal life. So she's really in like, all like, yeah. different things. So the only person who did name a species after her during her lifetime was the Swiss-American naturalist Louis, uh, who I can't pronounce again, Agassiz. Agassiz? In the early 1840s, he named two fossil fish species after her, Acrotus aningia and (laughs) Belenostomus aningia. Uh, and another after her friend Elizabeth Philpot. Uh, Aunt Agassiz was grateful for her help for the help that the woman had given him in examining fossil fish specimens during his visit to Lyme Regis in uh, 1834. And after her death, other species, including the ostracod, I'm not going to keep reading these. Let's just say an ostracod, two genera of terapsid reptile, and. <laughs> The bivalve mollusk and a bivalve mollusk were named in her honor. Oh, some other things were named in her honor. I believe point, that. Point yeah. blank. Let's <laughs> just move on. In 2012, the uh, the plesiosaur genus 
Aninasora uh, was named for her, and the species Ichthyosaurus aninga was named for her in 2015. In March 2010, uh, as part of the celebration of the Royal Society's 350th anniversary, they invited a panel of experts to produce a list of the 10 British women who have most influenced the history of science, and Anning was on the list. That is the story of Mary Anning. Oh, that's beautiful. I love her. I wish I could know her. I know. There's so many, like, um, there's so many paintings of her. Yeah. She just looks like such a badass. It's like her little dog. Oh, Trey. (laughs) Trey. (laughs) Her just, like, on the cliffs. That's all all I got. Yeah, I know. I'm like, seashells. She sells seashells. I had no idea that was about Mary Annie. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's the story of Mary Annie. And I started to read this book called The Fossil Hunter, which is actually really entertaining and really, like, addicting. Um, So if you want to know, like, a more in-depth thing about Mary Annie's life, I think that's a really good source. That's so cool. Yeah. All right. Your turn. I'm done. Okay. (laughs) I'm out. All right. I guess this is when we transition to the next part of our podcast. Do you have your little sounds? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> My little sound. <laughs> I won't mean to be diminutive. Um, these are really important <laughs> sound bites. That's a joke. It's a bad joke. Okay. So, yeah. Um, so, while the first part of our show focuses on women who have made history, we also want to be sure to give shout outs to women that are making history today. Or should I say history? <laughs> No, I'll never say it. No, you should Only because I again. can't say it with a straight face, even though I appreciate people who use it. <laughs> oh, do people say that? Yeah, like her story instead of oh. his story. I didn't realize really? that history it's was like from his story. <laughs> Wait, is that... I don't really actually true? know if that's the etymology of history, but I think, like, feminists worldwide have tried to make history a thing, and it's just never really caught on. <laughs> Anyway, moving on. (laughs) This next segment, (laughs) I don't know if I can do this. Okay, you're on it. Um. So yeah. So we're giving shoutouts to cool ladies from today in our next segment called Women Who. (laughs) That's right. It's the women who work. Rihanna, there's a lot of female scientists that I'm extremely proud of. Just um, like Rihanna, there's some female scientists that you're extremely is, is Rihanna no, a female sorry, scientist she's you're a extremely female I'm extremely proud of? Oh, this is off to a bad start oh, already. Like okay. Um, we'll see if we do that in the future or not. <laughs> yeah, so basically in this segment, like one of us will give her a rundown of some cool experiments published recently that either involve women researchers or um, projects that were led by women researchers or maybe talk about someone, a woman who wins like a Nobel Prize or like gets inducted into the National Academy. Anyway, shout outs to cool sciencey ladies, essentially. I love it. Yeah, so <laughs> we'll see how this works. Um, okay. So, I picked this first group of researchers because I think this study is pertinent to starting a podcast. 
Oh God. <laughs> okay. Um, because it's likely we're going to say stupid things or do stupid things all the time. And these three women, Lee Jiang, Amy Drolet, and Carol Scott, published a paper in the journal Motivation and Emotion this week, um, showing that you can overcome embarrassment by taking the perspective of an observer. Okay. <laughs> so, are you feeling embarrassed yet? I've been embarrassed for the, the past hour. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay, so their study showed that if you try to take the perspective of somebody watching you rather than the perspective of the embarrassed person mm-hmm. or the person doing something embarrassing, you're less likely to feel embarrassed. Okay, but are you embarrassed right now? Yeah, because I can't get out of my head. Okay, <laughs> but like if I try to be, if I try to be you... That's not going to happen either. Not me, it's someone observing but us. <laughs> We're the like only people here. Like a podcast listener, oh, if I think of our listeners. Okay, okay. In the future observing us, not I mean, now observing I kind us. of assume there will be listeners that are... <laughs> <laughs> Point blank. I kind of assume there will be yeah. listeners. <laughs> yeah, right. That was the end of that sentence. You're right. No more. No, no, continue. Okay. Okay, but their study was kind of funny, um, but also really interesting. So they made people watch ads in which someone had something embarrassing happen to them. Okay. So one of the ads, a woman is in a yoga... This is an ad for Beano, which I think makes you <laughs> Like, a bad, I don't yeah. know, it seems like fun, honestly, yeah. which women are great at having fun. <laughs> Beano sounds like fun? No. Or this uh... The study, the like study. doing the study yeah. sounds uh-huh. like fun. So they had um, their partic- study participants watch videos, a video. So one group of them watched a video where a woman was in a yoga class and does downward facing dog. <laughs> <laughs> Did she fart? <laughs> and so, okay, they saw, okay, and they saw there's sort of a spectrum of people that are really self-conscious and embarrassment watching some yeah just watching Mm -hmm. right yeah that would be me okay um and they but they like kind of led them through i did not going through the whole paper they led them through a lot of different scenarios like this Mm -hmm. and in some scenarios they instructed some of the participants to remind themselves that it's like not them (laughs) Like, to be, that they're an observer, and, like, it's not happening to them. So, like, I am not farting. (laughs) I am not farting. Okay. I should say, like, we're experts in one field. Very specific Yeah, so it's hard for me, maybe, to describe all some of these studies. But, anyway. I don't exactly, reading through, I couldn't understand all of the jargon, but this is my own interpretation. I like it. That they sort of instructed some of the people to picture themselves as observers of a situation, not as being directly involved in it, which technically they were observers. Yeah. And when they did this, those observers felt less embarrassment, like reported to feel less embarrassed. Okay. Um, and they also found, and okay, this is just a side note. I'm just saying this is advice for us as podcasters. <laughs> but anyway, they also found, because these are researchers in a marketing field 
that people are more likely to buy a product if they feel embarrassed watching an ad. That they will? Yeah. Buy a thing if they're embarrassed? Yeah, even for the person. Why? If they, you know, I don't know. But maybe they can just empathize so much with that person that they're like, I need this product too. I gotta have it. <laughs> I gotta have Dino. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I gotta have Bino. <laughs> Bino, sponsor of so if you're ever like So advice, advice corner, if you're ever watching an ad and you feel embarrassed and you're like, I need this product, just be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an observer. I'm not actually embarrassed and maybe you won't want okay. as much. So that's just another cool thing. Anyway, so oh, okay. yeah. Um, go, go Lee, go Carol, and go Amy. That's a dumb study. <laughs> That's my shout out number one. And the rest is shorter. <laughs> okay. Um, I am not farting. What? I'm just. Are you farting? No, I'm telling. <laughs> I'm telling myself. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm taking the advice of the study and trying to calm my nerves. I know. Yeah, it's weird that. They had to instruct people to think of themselves as observers. I think I want to see a, a follow-up study where they give people a lot of beans, make them do yoga, and record them farting, and then make them watch <laughs> themselves farting versus oh if they're God, watching someone yes. else farting and seeing. It's a great idea. They're embarrassing. I would not sign up for that study <laughs> unless I was getting paid a lot. A but lot. Also, yeah. Yeah. That's okay. a really good idea. Is okay. it? <laughs> well, this is why we're not studying marketing. Probably. No, no. You put up a sign that just says, hey, want to fart in a yoga class? <laughs> well, yeah, actually, technically, sometimes everyone has wanted to fart in a yoga class and they felt like it was socially unacceptable. So maybe... There's goat yoga. I'm sure we could find something that's just like... Fart, 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 fart yoga. Let's start fart yoga. <laughs> fart yoga, you want? And people, and everyone just goes namaste. Yeah. But also, fart. like, they just, it's so, it's super loud in there, so no one can oh. hear. And there's just a lot of fans and a lot of fagrees. Lots of fans. It's just like, yeah. fart till you drop yoga. No. I'm sorry. Okay, <laughs> I'm Another good news study coming our way. Uh Um, So this was a study published in Science this week, and there was like 12 authors on this study, but the first author and the last author were both women, and those are the most powerful positions in authorship on the paper. Um, And they were kind of quoted the most Mm -hmm. in different press releases. So... Jamie Voiles and Corinne Richards Zawaki. They published a study this week that found, stating that about 12% of frogs in Panama, which is nine species, um, seem to be recovering from massive population decline. So out of so mm-hmm. out of about like 80 species, nine seem to be recovering from po- massive population decline. Okay. Uh, starting like 20 years ago, Richards. Researchers have seen amphibian population sizes decline substantially, most likely due to chytrid fungus mm-hmm. um, that 
that like infects the skin cells of frogs, so they don't like. I think they can't waste. Or and something. I think it's hard for them to. Yeah, hard for them to breathe. Yeah, because they breathe through their skin. Yeah, yeah. it's all bad. It's all bad. Um. So. Kitrid fungus has been spreading rapidly around the world, I'm pretty sure, mm-hmm. and yeah. killing frogs all over the damn place. Yeah. yeah. And it's been really, really sad. So it's cool to see that some frogs might be rebounding mm-hmm. from this infection, though it's not most species. And in this study, they also show that the frog species that are recovering did so as a result of changes in their skin cells, potentially. Oh, okay. So, like, maybe the frogs are evolving Mm -hmm. in response to the infection rather than the infection itself. Like, the fungus itself isn't changing. Mm -hmm. Is it becoming less less pathogenic? Yeah. But possibly the frogs are evolving. But something else that I read said it could also be due to, like, changes in climate and that climate change might be helping frogs in the short term even though Mm -hmm. in the long term it's not going to be good for anything but possibly like warmer weather or less rain or something is helping them right now yeah like slightly drier habitats Mm -hmm. because I know Kittred I thought Kittred liked warm wet you know I honestly have no idea I could ask my lab mate but it's fine yeah so anyways congrats ladies yeah (laughs) Um, that's great news. We're all rooting for you, and we're all rooting, rooting for, for the frogs. frogs. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Okay, last one, and this one's just sort of cool. Cool. I mean, they're all really cool. Yeah. This is the last one. Hit me. Uh, Jessica Fuji, a researcher at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, first mm-hmm. author on a cool paper published this week in Peer Day, detailing evidence that sea turtles use their limbs in foraging and feeding. What what are they doing? Okay. I don't know. You should read this paper because yeah. it's really cool. But they'll use their... So they just, like... They heard and seen in videos, like, sea turtles using their limbs to, like, um, carry food. Mm-hmm. Like, over distances or... Um, like, what kind of food? Like, uh, what do sea they eat fish? mollusks okay. and maybe some small fish. Okay. But, yeah, that's a good question. Definitely, like, shellfish. Okay. Um, and they'll also do behaviors, like, so they saw, like, or heard through the grapevine, whatever, that <laughs> sea tur- that someone had, like, observed sea turtles doing this foraging behavior. Okay. And so this study is sort of a meta-analysis of a ton of, like, sea critter cams and papers that talk about sea turtle foraging, which I'm like, hi, I want to do, just watch, like, sea turtles for hours. That sounds awesome. It's got to be so much video footage. I know. That gets a little boring. Per, like, (laughs) data point. It's a great undergrad project. Just watch the ocean for five hours. (laughs) Hopefully you'll see one sea turtle. A flipper, like, in the corner. Um, holding a fish. Right. Um, so they, so they found that sea turtles do things like they sweep dust around on the bottom floor so that prey will kind of get like stirred up and be easier to catch. They carry things. Um, and there's a lot of other behaviors, but they also talked about a behavior 
that dolphins do called kerplanking. That I never <laughs> <laughs> totally cute. Where dolphins slap the water surface with their tail to cause a startle response in prey to oh, be okay. captured. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And there's been like one thing like published on that. Okay. Um, but I think so. They like body slam the water and shock. Yeah, yeah. Fish. Yeah, so they do like this pe- this behavior called corralling, where they use one or both flippers to guide loose food in a directed manner towards their mouth. Like all these behaviors that have never really been formally described before, mm-hmm. and it sort of adds to growing um, literature on just like sea creatures using their limbs. For yeah. Being not just rather than swimming. Just swim. Yeah, yeah. Okay. which is really, really cool. It's very cool. Yeah. So, Jessica, if you're listening, good job. Good job. Publish more papers on kerplunking, please. <laughs> and if you want to get us a job, your job sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> if you look for, if you're looking for a postdoc. Yeah. So, that's shout outs for the week. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. Kerplunking, farting, all oh of the God. great verbing. Frogs are coming back. And frogs are coming or back. some of them at least. Which is good news. Yeah. Um, did you have... I do have a trivia question. <laughs> wait, wait. Okay. I have to... It's like a softball since this is our first ever... Yeah, make us feel good. Yeah. And I think, what, we'll just... An- we'll, like, let people look it up and then answer it. We'll answer it next week. Yeah. We'll okay. come... We'll totally come back to it. <laughs> Okay, wait, wait, so we, this is our question. Got some questions that I gotta ask. Who was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, and for what? Marie Curie? Yeah. Remember when I said I don't quite know what Marie Curie <laughs> Wait, so Rosalind Franklin helped discover DNA, right? Yeah, she did the... Marie Curie... Well, the... Let's let everybody look it up for next right. week. <laughs> Please tell me what she did. Easily Googleable. <laughs> we'll have to figure out how to do this better. I mean, this oh, was a so low hanging fruit, also. And, but yet, I could only answer half of it. Yeah, that I guess great. that's it. I think that's it. Okay, I I think I what I had things I was supposed to say at the end. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, whenever this goes up, you should write us a review on iTunes. Yeah. Because we want to be oh, number one. Oh, we're going to listen to a couple first. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in case. Just in case this is a good one, and then the other ones suck. Oh. Or the opposite. Oh, you if mean you the like, other way. Yeah. If you like this, write a review immediately. Yeah. And if you don't, <laughs> listen to a couple Try more. Try out some more. Um, we're, we might get a Twitter or something. That was an important note. Yes. And then, oh, our theme song is by, it's called Mary Annie. It's Yay. not going to be as thematic every... It's going to be the same song every week. Right, but we won't talk about Mary Annie. We won't talk Annie. about Mary Annie every week, though so we could. it seems like there's a lot there yeah. to explore. She's a great lady. Uh, and it's by Trey. the band Artichoke. Yeah, R.I.P. Trey. R.I.P. Trey. R.I.P. everybody. So I think that's it. You can follow us. So I am Ecology Gremlin. G.R. E-M-L-Y-N is how you spell gremlin in this case. Ecology underscore gremlin. Yeah. Um, I don't know what yours is. Well, yeah, that's, I'll say it. Oh, okay, yeah. cool, cool. <laughs> yeah, you can, until we get our joint 
pod Twitter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you can follow me at on Twitter at Emma Dietrich eight nine, which is E M M A D I E T R I C H eight nine. And if you have a lady you want us to go over. Yeah, if you have uh, a suggestions or like female scientists. Yeah, current or past. Yeah. You can tweet at us and then yeah. we'll maybe put it in the um, podcast. And if you uh, tweet about the show, we'll, we'll acknowledge you at the next show. So please tweet about us. Yeah, or if you say nice things. Yeah, say nice things about us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Stroke our egos. Oh, constructive criticism? Also good. Welcome. Yeah. Mean things? Not welcome. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. okay. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. By circa eighteen twenty, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together for the